As you may recall, as we've been going through this, that Ezekiel 25 through 32, in these several books, seven seats of pride and power are judged by the Lord. All of these seven seats surround Israel in the middle. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre and Sidon, and finally Egypt. And the Lord spends the most time on Egypt. Why so much time on Egypt alone? Why more than any others? Because while the judgments of these seven nations depict issues concerning all nations, even today, Egypt remains the biblical picture of the entire world. Now when we were back in Exodus, oh, nine years ago, we talked quite a bit about that, how Egypt is the picture of the world, and Israel the picture of anyone who would come out of the world, be redeemed from the world, delivered from the world. And Egypt remains that picture today, and God is calling His people out. He is calling us out of the world. God is calling us out from a flesh mentality to a spiritual mentality. And in a bit tonight, we're going to take some time to get there, but in a bit, I'm going to talk about some spiritual things. You need to understand that the word spiritual does not mean mysterious or esoteric or flimsy. The world thinks of spiritual as ghostly, as something you can just kind of pass your hand right through. through. It's not really there. It's more just an attitude, an emotion. Spiritual things are more real than physical things. We're just stuck in the physical world and having trouble seeing that, understanding that. So I want to encourage you, in fact, not just tonight, but from here on out, anytime you hear the word spiritual, let a bell go off in your head to remind you that it is more real than the physical. When you hear spiritual, think this is reality. Because where God is concerned, and where eternity is concerned, and where the big picture is concerned... The spiritual things are what matter. Egypt is for us, yeah, a physical nation, a real nation, a nation that's still there in this world, an ancient nation, but the physical Egypt's not the big concern. It is spiritual Egypt. what, What does Egypt represent? And throughout Scripture, again, it represents the world, and God wants to call His people out of the world. God said to Moses at the burning bush, Come now, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Leviticus 11.45 The Lord says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. Peter will quote that later. So church, we got to do the same thing. It's not just for the people of Israel to be holy because He is holy. It is for us, Christians, followers, believers in Jesus. He says, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Deuteronomy 26, verse 7. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with a great terror and with signs and wonders. And He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses said they're on the border of the promised land. If you tonight are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have been delivered. You have been brought out. You are not of this world any longer. Out of the world. Not, Not to Whidbey Island. Not to Washington State. Not to... 
America as a nation, we have been spiritually brought out to His kingdom. And we are citizens of that kingdom even now. That kingdom that will be manifested one day here on earth. It will be seen by all. But right now, it is a kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14 verse 17 tells us. Meanwhile, God is calling people out of Egypt. Keep that in mind and let's take a look at these judgments beginning in chapter 29, verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. It is the twelfth of Tibet, which would be the equivalent of our January, 586 B.C. It is seven months away from the fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple. I told you before, Ezekiel is very specific about when he receives his oracles, his prophecies, his visions. So the judgments that we're going to look at tonight fall between 587 and 585 B.C. These are all happening, coming to Ezekiel right at the same time that Judah is under siege and that Jerusalem is about to fall or has already fallen. There's one exception that you'll see in just a few minutes that is actually come, comes a little bit later on. But here the Lord gives us seven oracles against Egypt and we're just going to follow these oracles through tonight to understand what he is saying, not only in judgment of Egypt, but to us as well. We're going to start with the oracle of the crocodile. The oracle of the crocodile. Speak and say, verse 3, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers, that has said, My Nile is mine, and I myself have made it. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your rivers cling to your scales and I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish of your rivers will cling to your scales. I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You will fall on the open field. You will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the sky. Then the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord because they have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and you tore all their hands. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins quake. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon you a sword and will cut off from you man and beast. The land of Egypt will become a desolation and waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, The Nile is mine and I have made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your rivers. I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migdal to Sain and even to the border of Ethiopia. A man's foot will not pass through it and the foot of a beast will not pass through it and it will not be inhabited for 40 years. So I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated lands and her cities in the midst of the cities that are laid waste will be desolate 40 years. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of 40 years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I will turn the fortunes of Egypt and make them return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there they will be a lowly kingdom, 
It will be the lowest of the kingdoms, and it will never again lift itself up above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations, and it will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. The great monster, verse 3 tells us, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers, the Hebrew word is tanim, and it's variously translated in scripture, serpent, dragon, or monster. It's not the serpent that you think of when you think of Satan. That word that is applied to Satan, to the devil, is nachash, the word that's used in Genesis chapter 3. This tanim can speak of either a dragon-like or or snake-like creature, but in this case, the context reveals that this scaly swimmer of the Nile would be a crocodile. And there's a reason God chooses this picture, this, this monster of the Nile, to bring this oracle. First of all, note in verse 4, the fish that he says several times, the fish of your rivers will cling to your scales. The fish speaks of the people of Egypt who cling to their Pharaoh, who will hang on to their Pharaoh, who swim around their Pharaoh and are a part of what he's doing. But the crocodile is, and especially at that time, Pharaoh Hophra. Pharaoh Hophra of history is the crocodile to whom the Lord is speaking and about whom he's speaking. Again, the picture of the crocodile here is, well, it's intentional. Among the many idols, and there were a plethora of idols in Egypt, but among their many idols, there was one called Sobek. Sobek, and you may even have seen pictures of this, had the body of a man and the head of a crocodile. The idol Sobek. The Pharaoh was himself supposed to be a living incarnation of Sobek, which tells me he must have been a pretty ugly guy. He had three elements, this, this idol, and, and it was thought of Pharaoh the same thing. Sobek had ruling power, fertility, and military might. And the whole thing was a crock. <laughs> the Lord calls this crocodile toothless. Look at verses 6 and 7. He even changes the picture, the narrative, just slightly here. He says, Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord, because they have been only a staff made of reed. To the house of Israel, when they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their hands. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins quake. Pharaoh is no crock among the reeds. In fact, he's no more than a reed. And the Lord says, it would be as if Israel trying to lean on Egypt would be like someone taking a reed out of the Nile, drying it out, and trying to use that for a walking stick. Trying to lean on that. Those hollow reeds that would dry out and you lean on them and they just would snap. And in snapping, just hurt the one of the hand of the one trying to lean on you. I've had something similar happen with guitar strings. Have you had that happen, Josiah? Where you're stringing the guitar and everything's going along just swimmingly, and all of a sudden, bling, and the string snaps. I've had that happen twice in my life. Once, almost took out an eye, and the other time lashed a cut right across my hand. And so when I string guitars now, I kind of do it at a distance. Got this real paranoia that they're going to break on me. But that's what he's talking about here. Egypt, you are weak. You're not so strong. Israel, you're foolish for trying to lean on Egypt. And throughout Israel's history, they kept trying to go back to Egypt. 
like so many Christians I know who want to go back to the world. It makes no sense. Before they even got out of the wilderness, the people of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. And then when they finally got settled into the land, king after king would would look down to Egypt for help, for strength. We see Hezekiah, great, good king Hezekiah, sought help from Egypt to the point that the Lord brought a prophecy through Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30, and said, stop it. Don't go down looking for horses and chariots and strength that way. It's a foolish move. We know Jehoiakim and finally Zedekiah tried to lean on Egypt in the last days of of Judah before Babylon came against them, trying to ally themselves with the old crocodile. And it would do them no good. For all the power, supposed power, I guess, of Sobek, Egypt was a weak source of support. Isaiah 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Jeremiah 2.36 Why do you go around so much changing your way? You will be put to shame by Egypt just as you were put to shame by Assyria. God says you're looking for help from the nations. You're looking for your strength from another country. It's foolishness. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 15 gives the real answer. Many of you know this. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. It's never in our striving. It's never in our worry. It's never in our stress. It's never in our strategies and figuring things out. That is not where the Lord brings salvation. But in repentance and rest and quietness and trust. Because it's there that we grow strong in the Lord. It's there that our trust begins to build up. Why do people turn to Egypt when the enemy, in this case physically speaking, Babylon, but in our case our spiritual enemy, spiritual ding ding, reality, the spiritual enemy Satan, why do we keep turning to Egypt for help when the enemy attacks? You never get what you think you're going to get from Egypt. We never get what we think we're going to get from the world. Think back a little bit in in our history of recent Bible study. After the fall of Jerusalem, remember what happened? Jerusalem goes down, and you've got the exiles out in Babylon, but there is a remnant of people left over. Kind of the wretched refuse of of Judah. The old, the infirm, the sick. um, a, A handful here and there. And they all kind of made their way to a place called Mizpah. And a governor there, who was set as governor by Nebuchadnezzar, for those left over, named Gedaliah. Remember Gedaliah? The people gathered to him there. And Gedaliah had a, a threefold promise for the people. He was going to secure the remnant, stay in the land, and submit to and serve Nebuchadnezzar. That's what God wanted to have done. In fact, before the fall of Judah, those of you who studied through Jeremiah, you might remember, the Lord was saying the whole time, don't fight against Nebuchadnezzar, accept his authority over you, and I'll let you live in the land. But they rebelled, they fought back, so they went into exile. And even after all that happened, they all gathered to Gedaliah, they have another chance. Stay in the land, stay put. You can plant your vineyards, you can raise your flocks and your herds, just stay put. Well... (laughs) 
a man by the name of Ishmael assassinated Gedaliah. And he took the people and began to drag them up toward Ammon, saying, let's go to the Ammonites, let's, let's secure with them and fight back against Babylon. It was a suicide mission. It was foolishness. Da-da-da-da, along comes a man named Yohanan, and he grabs hold of the people, and he chases off Ishmael, rescues the people, and he brings them back down to Mizpah. Jeremiah's there, and Yohanan and all of the other foolish leaders at the time said, we got to get out of here. we got to get down to Egypt. Let's go back down to Egypt and hide out there. And Jeremiah, by a clear directive of the Lord, said, you shall not go back. If you go back there, you have no help from me. And what did they do? They went back. After all those years, nearly a thousand years in the land, they would now head back to Egypt. They settled in a place called Tachpankes. And in Jeremiah 43... Jeremiah prophesies that that city is going to be the place where Nebuchadnezzar sets up his pavilion. Over the summer palace of Pharaoh, he's going to set up his pavilion. He did it right there. In fact, fast forward now to uh, 571 B.C. This is the one time in these oracles where we jump ahead to the next oracle, beginning in verse 17. This is what I would call the oracle of compensation. The oracle of compensation. Now in the 27th year, again this is 571 B.C., in the first month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Who remembers from last week, how long did Nebuchadnezzar lay siege against Tyre? Thirteen years. Excellent, you remember. Good. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed bare, but he and his army had no wages from Tyre for the labor that he had performed against it. Remember what happened? They show up, they fight against the mainland part of the city of Tyre, but the main part of Tyre was out on the rock island. By the time they busted through into the mainland of Tyre, by the time the siege got into the city, all of the treasures of Tyre were gone. The Tyrians had shipped them across to the rock island. So here are Nebuchadnezzar's fighting men. And a lot of the salary and the wage that came to a soldier in that day came from the spoils of war. That's where your riches were made. That was your income, your wages. They come into the city, no spoils. They can't get the spoils from Tyre across the way. They finally, as we said last week, retire and leave there. Where does he go? Verse 19, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder, and it will be wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, which he performed because they acted for me, declares the Lord God. On that day I will make a horn sprout for the house of Israel, and I will open your mouth in their midst, and then they will know that I am the Lord. And so exactly as the Lord said would happen, this took place. Nebuchadnezzar goes down to Egypt, and both Ezekiel's prophecy here and Jeremiah's prophecy of Jeremiah 43 were precisely and exactly fulfilled between 568 and 567. So five years after this prophecy was given, Egypt falls to Babylon. Egypt fell to Babylon. Remember what we just read. He said it would not be inhabited for 40 years. There's a 40-year span of history where Babylon had control over Egypt and drove the Egyptians out. And in history, we have nothing from that period in Egypt. 
It's like a, a, a tiny little black hole in the midst of a, of a vast Egyptian history where there's just nothing talked about, nothing went on. Now, there are those archaeologists who say, yeah, but, but archaeological finds after that don't say anything about Babylon crushing Egypt. Well, would you? In fact, kings in those days were notorious for not talking about their defeats, only talking about their successes. And it's interesting that there's this very quiet spot that lasts 40 years as Babylon had control over the land of Egypt. But here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar got his wages from Egypt. And in the same way, our enemy gets his wages from the world. But understand this. We don't. We don't get our wages from the world. You know what the wages of the world are? The wages of sin is... Death, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we need. It's not wages, it's the free gift. And if we try to wage with the world, if we try to get something out of the world, we will always find ourselves emptied out. We'll be like the children of Israel down in Egypt thinking, this is a safe place, this will work for me. This is how I'll get through life. And the enemy comes in and crushes it, and then we stand, stand there blaming God. Well, how could you allow this to happen, Lord? How could you bring this tragedy upon me? How could we trust the world? Why do we keep thinking Egypt is going to do it for us when it never does? Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And I'll tell you, in this whole situation with Syria in the Middle East, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. Jeremiah 17, verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. And I thought about this, and I wonder, why is this Egyptian crocodile ignorant of the prophetic words of Jeremiah, of the prophetic words of Ezekiel? Word got around, word traveled in those days. No doubt Pharaoh heard the words. Why? Did he ignore them? Maybe he had water in his ears. Or maybe he heard it, but he just scaled it back. Truth is, brace yourselves, he was in denial. You can't talk about Egypt without a pun like that. He was in denial, literally. He didn't believe it. He trusted his own strength. He said, the Nile is mine. In fact, not only did he say the Nile is mine, did you know? He said, I made the Nile. That's denial right there. I made it. Look at what it's done for me. Verse 21 is interesting. It goes kind of an odd direction all of a sudden. On that day, I will make a horn sprout for the house of Israel, and I will open your mouth in their midst and then they will know that I am the Lord. In that day, I'll make a horn sprout for Israel? Well, historically, in that day, did a horn sprout for Israel? Actually, yes, one did. Forty years later, in that day, when God did bring Egypt back into their land, brought the Egyptians back, after 40 years, they kind of came back in and resettled. A ruler by the name of Cyrus the Persian is the one who did it. A horn for Israel. The word horn, literally in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, just refers to a ruler, a king. Now often we think of the horn of David being Messiah, and truly it is. But in this case, historically speaking, 
I will make a horn sprout for the house of Israel. And I will open your mouth in their midst. And then you will know that I am the Lord. And that's interesting because Cyrus overthrew Babylon, released the Jewish exiles, you know, back into their land to rebuild. And he allowed the Egyptians to return to their land, going back to a semblance of self-rule. However, isn't it interesting, from that point all the way up until present day, Egypt never would rise again to its former glory. And that's exactly what God said in the prophecy. It's not going to rise again. It will never be over another country. And it never has been. And when they've tried to overtake other countries, it's always gone bad. 1967, the Six-Day War, didn't turn out so well for Egypt. More about that in a second. Cyrus, though. Cyrus would be a horn for Israel. Cyrus himself, Scripture tells us, is a type, a picture, if you will, of Messiah. Of the Messiah who would come later. Isaiah 44, verse 28 says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Which Cyrus did say that. Isaiah 45, verse 1, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, His anointed. Cyrus is called a shepherd. Cyrus is called Mashiach whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue the nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Well, wait a minute. Who opens doors that no one can shut? Well, that would be Jesus Messiah. So Cyrus is a picture of Messiah. And verse 21, speaking, I believe, historically of Cyrus, also speaks prophetically of Jesus the Messiah. I wasn't sure about that until I went on to the next oracle and the context here tells us that yes, indeed, verse 21 is leading us into an end times lament. Number three, the oracle of calamity. The oracle of calamity. Verse 1, chapter 30. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God. Wail. Alas for the day, for the day is near, for the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish will be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt. They will, be, they will take away, or they take away her wealth, and her foundations are torn down. Ethiopia, put, Lud, all Arabia and Libya, and the people of the land that is in league will fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord. Indeed, those who support Egypt will fall, and the pride of her power will come down from Migdal to Syene. They will fall within her by the sword, declares the Lord God. They will be desolate in the midst of the desolated lands, and her cities will be in the midst of the devastated cities. And they will know that I am the Lord when I set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are broken. On that day, messengers will go forth from me in ships to frighten Secure Ethiopia, and anguish will be on them as on the day of Egypt, for behold, it comes. Now you need to understand, this lament is like a double-edged sword. It's two-sided. It is both immediate and it's distant. Immediate in that it indicates calamity for Egypt, but it's a distant prophecy in that it speaks of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is never a phrase that is used lightly in the Scriptures. 
In fact, every single time you see the phrase, the day of the Lord used, it speaks of a specific time in history, not history past, but history, I believe, soon to come. Don't diminish that phrase. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord covers a broad span of time. A great span, in fact. It's more than what we would consider one day. It is a day in which God is working out the finality of His plan. It's a day, I believe, and I think I can show you why, a day that begins with the rapture of the church. A day that is followed quickly by the tribulation that's described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Here are several verses, a sampling, if you will, of verses regarding the day of the Lord. I'm just going to read through these. You might want to jot them down. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Isaiah 13, 9, Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and He will exterminate its sinners from it. Joel 1, verse 15. Joel is a big prophet regarding the day of the Lord. He says, Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Joel chapter 2, verse 11, The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What valley is that? It's the valley of Jehoshaphat. There's another name for it. Megiddo. The valley of Armageddon. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. It, it will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 15. The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Wow. Let me read that again. As you have done, nations of the world, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. I think that verse alone would cause me never to run for president. <laughs> that and certain political statements I've made over the years. Zephaniah 1.7 Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. Zephaniah 1.14 Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, God says to Israel. In the New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. That is why I believe the day of the Lord begins with the rapture. Because there is no other thing on the prophetic calendar that comes like a thief. No other thing that comes with complete surprise. The rapture will happen. No one knows the day or the hour. No one can predict it. We can know the the season. We can have a sense that it is near. And I believe He is near. 
I still go to bed every night wondering if I'll wake up here or in heaven. I kind of hope the rapture happens while I am awake because I want to experience that lift, you know. I think either way I will. Yeah. Yeah, boom. Talk about waking up, a a sudden wake-up call there. Whoa, hey, clouds. (laughs) I believe it begins with the rapture because it's a time of surprise. Like a thief in the night, Jesus comes in and takes His church. And the world then will be without that, that treasure that will be taken. The tribulation itself, we know when the tribulation starts. That's not going to be a surprise. It's very easy to figure out when that starts. Bible students, when does the tribulation start? When the covenant is signed between Israel and Antichrist. A seven-year peace treaty. That's all anyone need know is, you know, first front page of the news, Israel just signed a seven-year peace treaty with our great glorious leader, the man of peace. Tribulation just began. We know that the great tribulation comes right exactly at the midpoint of the tribulation. So three and a half years, do the counting. As soon as the tribulation, hopefully you won't be here to count, but as soon as the tribulation starts, three and a half years, boom, Antichrist is going to take his seat on the throne in the temple of God and he's going to declare himself to be God. We know when that's going to happen. We know when the glorious appearing is going to happen, exactly seven years after the start of the great tribulation. And remember, it's not the rapture that starts the great tribulation. It's the signing of a covenant. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. That covenant signed, tribulation starts. Middle of the tribulation, Antichrist takes his seat and proclaims himself to be God. End of the tribulation, seven years later, it's easily timed. We know when it's going to happen. Only the rapture remains a complete surprise. So if the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, the day of the Lord will begin. The rapture of the church is taken out and suddenly things start to get dark. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that is the rapture, by the way, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Someone was telling him, you've missed the rapture. The day of the Lord is here. All this persecution, this is it. We're in the tribulation. Paul says, no. No, you haven't missed the rapture. And understand, the day of the Lord can't come until the apostasy comes first. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 is an interesting day of the Lord verse because Peter writes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which, meaning on that day or during that span of time, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now my old theology used to think that was the way it would be, that we would come all the way to the end of history, God would take us to heaven, and He'd destroy the earth, and that's it. They had no concept of the book of Revelation, of the layout of things to come. When I started to study that, I began to think, Lord, when does this earth burning happen? I mean, if this happens on the day of the Lord, when does that happen? Peter says... The day of the Lord ends with the destruction of the world. Begins with the rapture of the church, thief in the night, ends with the destruction of the world. But what about the millennial kingdom? Where does does that fit into all of this? 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. At the end of the Millennial Kingdom, and if you're having trouble tracking this, it's very simple. We have a nine-month study through the book of Revelation online. You can go listen through it. In short, the church is pulled out. Sometime after that, the tribulation begins with the signing of a covenant of peace between Israel and a great world leader. The Bible is specific on all this, gang. Three and a half years in, that world leader declares himself to be God. Three and a half years later, after what's called the Great Tribulation, Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on earth. Revelation 20 describes that kingdom as a thousand literal years on earth, Jesus ruling and reigning out of Jerusalem. At the end of that time, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. That is when the earth is burned up in its elements and destroyed by fire. Because earth and heaven at that point, at the great throne judgment, flee away. That's the end of the day of the Lord. Stretching from the rapture, through the tribulation, across the millennial kingdom, culminating in the great throne judgment. And the Lord uses this historical calamity of Egypt in 568 to 567 BC as a picture of that coming time that we might understand a little better that time when God will rule over, will subdue the enemy of the earth. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, I will also make the hordes of Egypt cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, So now we're talking immediate prophecy. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of the nations, will be brought in to destroy the land. And they will draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. Moreover, I will make the Nile canals dry. I will sell the land into the hands of evil men. I will make the land desolate and all that's in it by the hand of strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken. The Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. And Egypt was glorious and great because one of the things that the pharaohs did was tap into the Nile and send shoots out for agriculture so that the whole land of Egypt was rich in agriculture and fruits and vegetables. But Nebuchadnezzar's army comes marching in and cuts off these rivers, these streamlets that run off of the Nile. They dry up, and Nebuchadnezzar's army then can pass by, can march on the rest of Egypt, not having to worry about these tributaries. And because there are no tributaries, in the Middle East, in the heat, in the desert-like environment, all the crops die. And it happened very quickly. Babylon cut it all off. I saw that and I thought for a moment, you know, it's interesting, the rivers of this world are easily cut off by the enemy as well. We think I can just run down to the river and take care of you know, whatever I need to, take care of my thirst. I just run down to Walmart, no big deal. I just run down to Target, no big deal, take care of my needs. I can just go to the gas station, no problem. What happens when we go to the gas station and the Middle East has, has exploded and, and we're not allowed to drill for oil here, and, and that's why I'm not going to be president, and, <laughs> and all of a sudden gas is 10 bucks a gallon. The river starts to dry up. The enemy dries up the rivers, the things we rely on, the things we trust in, the things we assume will always be there to water our lives. The enemy wants to dry those up and they can quickly dry. But Jesus says, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
You want to survive in this world? You survive spiritually by the rivers of living water of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. John 7, verse 38. Verse 13, continuing on, thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis. Not Tennessee. Egypt. There will no longer be a prince in the land of Egypt. And I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate. I will set a fire in Zoan and execute judgment on Thebes. I will pour out my wrath on Sin, the stronghold of Egypt. That's interesting. Sin is the stronghold of Egypt, just like Sin is the stronghold of the world. I will also cut off the hordes of Thebes. I will set a fire in Egypt. Sin will writhe in anguish. Thebes will be breached. Memphis will have distresses daily. The young men of On and of Pi-Beset will fall by the sword. The women will go into captivity. In Tachpinkase, the day will be dark. (laughs) Interesting, that's where Israel was hiding out. When I break there the yoke bars of Egypt, and then the pride of her power will cease in her, a cloud will cover her, and her daughters will go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, and they will know that I am the Lord. That's the oracle of calamity, if I didn't say that. The oracle of calamity. Now, if you're thinking through this, and I hope you are, you might ask the question, why does the Lord combine the imminent prophecy of the destruction of Egypt by Babylon with the end times prophecy of the day of the Lord? Why does He put these two together? Feinberg gives an excellent response to that question. I'll just read this to you. He says, The human heart is ever prone to put off the judgment of God. Easily finding solace in the unfounded thought that If God's visitation be postponed long enough, it may never occur at all. I remember thinking that way as a child. If I was sent to my room and the spanking was imminent, the longer I was in my room, the greater the hope that the spanking would never come. Nine times out of ten, that hope was unfounded. But that's the way we think, isn't it? Hey, I haven't been punished. Nobody's caught me. There's no problem. Maybe it'll just be forgotten. And so God brings this amazing prophecy and it happens immediately and it happens eventually. And the immediateness of it tells us this is coming. God follows through. And He will follow through on the day of the Lord. Gang, that was that immediate picture anyway was 2,500 years ago. So let me ask you, which judgment do you think we're closer to? Then, or the one about to come? 